You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning. Try it again, again for those who are excited to be here today. Good morning. Amen. Are we not blessed to worship like that? Uh, let's give the Lord a hand. Thank you guys for leading us in musical worship. Um, what a joy to worship like that every week, huh? Amen. Uh, it, it has been a joy to be here with you. I just want to say on behalf of my wife, Candy, uh, how many people got to hear Candy uh, two days ago? Any of the women? Uh, she had a wonderful time. Thank you for your hospitality for us, and uh, you have an amazing church here, and, so, and you know that, so uh, it's a great time to be here at Harvest, and uh, you have an amazing pastor as well. Uh, got to spend time with his wife, Jill, and just to get to know her, and just hear about what God's doing through him. And he is a man, as you know, who unapologetically preaches the word, which is a rarity today, right? And so we, we thank God for Robbie. Now, he does spell his name the wrong way. We'll forgive, <laughs> forgive him for that. But, no, and it's a, it's a trickle-down effect with the staff, and uh, just the staff here from uh, Craig and George and Kathy and Laura and just many others we got to meet. Uh, you guys are blessed, and uh, I think you know that. Today I'm going to speak a topic that I am very passionate about, and it's the topic of disciple-making. And what I want to give you today in our time together is a strategy to change the world. And it's not a strategy I came up with. It's actually a strategy as old as 2,000 years ago. Jesus gave it to the disciples. And I pray as we come to this passage, which would be very familiar to some of us, that God would give us some fresh insights, apply it differently to our lives, that we wouldn't just hear a word from God, but we'd actually apply the word we've heard. I want you to know, we, we have been so excited to come. In fact, we had planned to come many months ago, and, and the reason we knew that the Lord was working it out is last, last November-ish, we started planning a trip to Israel. It's the first time our church that I'm pastoring in uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is right outside of Nashville, has ever gone to Israel. And so they had planned to go years before, just never got around to it. So we were planning this trip. Uh, people were very excited to go. And the way this event worked out is it was on the front end of the Israel trip. So literally, I will preach this sermon. Excuse me for leaving early, but I've got to catch a flight in Toronto to meet the team at five and fly to Israel. So it just worked out perfectly. So we planned this for a while. Uh, we had booked with a travel agent, and we said, listen, we have to be in Toronto before Friday, but in Thursday afternoon, because we had an event at our church. And so Kenny and I went to the airport, like they say, two hours early. We had our itinerary printed out. We walked up to the desk to Air Canada. Now, I don't know about you. Has anybody flown Air Canada before? Went to the desk. There was nobody at the desk. 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. We got all our bags packed, two, three bags each. We're standing there two hours early. Finally, I go to the Air Alaska desk, and I'm like, hey, are they still flying to Canada? They said, I think they're flying to Canada. Maybe the agent's not here. And she said, let me flag someone down. She literally gets this guy who looks like he just got off the tarmac. I mean, he's got like the bright vest on. I'm like, this guy? And then he goes back, starts pecking on the keyboard. You know, he's like... Give me that itinerary. He's like, that flight doesn't exist, Mr. Gallaty. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got a printout here. We're going to Canada. He said, no, you're not, because that flight doesn't leave till tomorrow. I called the travel agent. I'm like, ma'am, what just happened? We have to get to Canada. We're like, there's an event this weekend. And she said, 
She said, Pastor Robbie, listen, don't worry. Sometimes we make plans, and plans sometimes change. I'm like, That's all you got, right? Now, one of the things we're going to see in the Bible today is that aren't you glad we serve a God who never changes? Amen? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same plan that Jesus gave his disciples 2,000 years ago is still the same plan he gives us today to change the world. And you know what the plan is? Make disciples. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, and we're going to examine the Great Commission this morning, which is a very familiar passage. We're going to ask the Lord to speak to us individually today. And I want to show you what the strategy Jesus gave us to change the world. Now, when you get to Matthew 28, 16, you can say word. We like to say word at the church I pastor because we know it's the word that changes our lives, right? Not my cool stories, funny illustrations, or sense of humor. If you came for that, you won't get a lot of that, but you're going to get the word today. And so if you're there, you can say word. Say it like you mean it. Amen. Thank you. That's my wife right there, so thank you, Candy. <laughs> Verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, is anybody else kind of bothered by that? Like, they worship, but some doubted. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And remember, I am always with you to the end of the age. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we pray that you would speak to us personally and individually today that you would show us that the reason it's called the Great Commission is because it's a partnership. You didn't need us to fulfill this command, but yet you empower us and you call us into this great mission, that we have the opportunity every day to wake up and partner with the God of the universe. And we never want to get over that. Never let us get over being saved. God, I'm even mindful this morning as I woke up 15 years ago, yesterday, I was lost and heading to a Christless eternity. But God, you're rich in mercy and grace. You raise us up and give us a plan and a purpose. You save us from our sins, and you do that for all of us. And we are eternally grateful. God, help us never get over being saved. Help us never get over being saved in here. You're the teacher. We're the student. We pull up a seat to the table. Teach us now, we ask it. And the only name we know how, and that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said... Amen. I want to divide our time into three sections here. I want to just kind of dissect the Great Commission in three sections. Here's the first one if you're taking notes. Write this down. We see the posture of the disciples. If you're not taking notes, act like it. It makes you look holy. The... <laughs> well, it does, right? The posture of the disciples. What's happened at this point is this. Everything Jesus has done up to this moment with these disciples has led up to this event. This is the apex of his ministry, if you will. It's not theoretical discipleship for Jesus. It's not philosophical discipleship. It's, it's not even uh, doctrinal discipleship. Jesus has emulated for three to three and a half years what he now is going to expect from his disciples. 
every miracle he performed, every dinner he fed the people with, every lame man that walked, every deaf guy who heard, all of that culminates here. And so what Jesus is going to tell them is something he has already emulated. And here's a great leadership principle for all of us. You may say, I'm not a leader. We're all leaders. If you're parents, you're leaders. If you have kids, you're leaders. Uh, if you're in school, you're a leader, whether you want to be or not. Here's a great principle. We can't expect from others what we're not emulating ourselves. We, we can't expect others around us to do something we're not willing to do ourselves. What do you mean, Robbie? If you want your kids to be in the Word, Dad, you need to be a man who's in the Word until the Word gets into you. Mom, if you want your kids to be more in prayer, then you need to lead out in prayer. If you want a church that gets in the Bible and listens to the Word and meditates on the Word and memorizes the Word, you need a leadership staff that does the same. So Jesus emulated for about three to three and a half years what he's now going to expect them to do. Now, I said this earlier as we were reading, but I've always been baffled by this. Like, like what are these guys doubting? Has anybody ever thought about that? Like, like what could they possibly be doubting? Are they doubting that Jesus is the Messiah? Could be. Are they doubting that Jesus actually is in the resurrected form? Because you got to understand, he's in the resurrected form. He's already died on the cross about 40 days before. He's about to ascend into heaven. So are they doubting it's really Jesus? Are they doubting his identity? Are they doubting the movement? Who knows? And up to this point, I've always been baffled by that until a couple years ago. I preached a sermon a couple Easter's ago where I started it after Easter. Most pastors, you may have heard this, preach sermons on the seven sayings of the cross, right? It is finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they end with the one on the cross, Jesus gives up his spirit. But I wanted to preach a sermon series on what happened after the cross, and we called it Discourses After Death. So I wanted to hear about the dialogue Jesus had with people in the resurrected form. And here's what I found out. Guess how many times Jesus has already appeared to these disciples before this point? Take a guess. Three. John chapter 20, beginning of the chapter, you remember this. The disciples are in the upper room. They're huddled up. They're, they're scared. Jesus walks through the wall, remember, says, peace be with you. And I don't know about you. I'd be pretty fearful if I see a guy walk through the wall, right? He says, peace. They're like, okay. And then he breathes upon them, gives them the Holy Spirit. But Thomas is not there. And you know Thomas. Thomas is a lawyer. He's always asking questions. Some of you get that later. But he's, a, he's always questioning things, right? Listen, if I don't see it and I don't touch Jesus' hand, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus comes back at the end of John 20 again to show himself to Thomas, second occasion. Then in John chapter 21, Jesus on the Sea of Galilee is preparing a catfish po'boy breakfast. We know Jesus is from Louisiana, probably. He would have been a Cajun if he was from the States. Why? Because we eat fish for breakfast. And so Jesus is preparing these catfish po'boys, if you will. Not, not catfish, wouldn't be kosher, but fish po'boys. The disciples come down and they meet with Jesus the third occasion. So this is the fourth time these men have seen Jesus. There is no way they're doubting who Jesus is. There's no way they're doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. So what are they doubting? Come in real close. I think they're doubting not Jesus. I think they're doubting themselves. You have to admit, I mean, they just saw their master, their savior, their leader, not only be persecuted and beaten, but they saw him die for the movement. And so imagine this bantering going back and forth, right? Peter and Andrew, James and John. Listen, what, what if this happens to us, guys? 
And what if they persecuted? What if they beat us with rods or, or whip us with whips? What if they put us in prison? Or even worse, what if we die just like you? And I believe Jesus stands up and says, shh, be quiet. Feel the weight of this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Any questions? See, here's what Jesus does. He moves the posture of the disciples, which is to focus on them, onto the providence of God, which means God's got this, right? God's in control of all things. And notice how he begins the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I don't know if you caught this when we were reading, but go back to the text. And I want you to notice how many times, I think this is fascinating, how many times the inclusive word all is used. Did you catch that? Look at that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, for, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. And teach them what? All that I've commanded you. And by the way, I'll be with you guys all the time. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the whole thing from start to finish is in the sovereign hand of God. And it's in the sovereign hand of God in heaven, and it's in the hand of God on earth. Well, why does he say heaven? I think, if you're taking notes, write down heaven. I think what he means here is the same power that is realized in heaven, the same experience of the kingdom of heaven, is now available to us on earth. Amen? You don't have to wait to go to heaven. You can experience the power of heaven today. And we know that because Jesus is God. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, when Paul just kind of goes off in this, this excursion of just explaining who Jesus is and just this exercise of divinity. Look what he says in verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let me give you a pop quiz this morning. If you were to answer, don't answer publicly, think internally. If you were to answer this question and you could not choose the middle, meaning you can't say to me, it's a both and, okay? You have to choose one side. Where do you view Jesus, the man in the Gospels? Where do you view Jesus in the Gospels? Do you view him more on the God side or do you look at him more on the man side? And there's no right or wrong answer. Somebody at the first service said, well, I looked at him the other way. I said, there's no right or wrong answer. Now, some of you may say, well, pastor, he's both. I know he's both, okay? I get that. He's 100% man, 100% God. But just, I want to prove a point here. As you look at Jesus reading through the Gospels, if you're like me, and I've swung back and forth, but if you're like me, I look at him more as God, right? I mean, he's raising the dead, he's giving sight to the blind, he's stopping the mouths of demons. Do you know the disciples in the first century had a different perspective? See, they knew Jesus was a man. They saw him sleep, they saw him being tired, they saw him eat. Jesus spent all of his earthly ministry convincing them he was God. Remember John chapter 8? That the Pharisees are questioning him and they're saying, do you think you're greater than our father Abraham who came before you? And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. 
And what he does is he quotes basically the same word from Exodus 3 when God says, this is who I am. I am who I am. In John chapter 10, Jesus continues on with the disciples. My father who has given them to me is greater than all of them. Watch this. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the what? Father are one. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the same authority that God has in heaven, I have as well. The same authority in heaven is now realized on earth, but I also have authority on the earth or over the earth. Now turn with me to the right, uh, a page or two, to Mark's gospel. So just go quickly to to Mark chapter 1, and I want to show you how Mark, the gospel writer, was adamant about proving Jesus was Lord of all the earth. And he does this in kind of a repeated manner. Jesus, he shows us right away, is Lord and has authority over the animals. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 13. He was with the wild animals 40 days in the wilderness. He was was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the what? Wild animals. Notice he doesn't say animals. Wild animals. Now, I heard there's a couple wild animals in Ontario, right? And you know what they say, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, that's a bad thing, right? It's not a good thing. Now, when I was in first, uh, first grade, uh, first grade, I was in first year Greek, uh, they call it baby Greek in seminary, I learned from my Greek professor that this word with seems like an innocent word. It's packed with meaning. This word with gives us the appearance that Jesus was not only hanging around the animals, but he actually was in harmony with them. Circle that word with. See, they're not ravaging him. They're not attacking him. He's actually in harmony with the animals. But he also has authority not only the animals, but the angels. Look at the end of that verse. The angels were serving him. Now, Psalm 2.8 tells us that God made man a little lower than the angels, but yet we see the Son of Man being served by the angels. He has authority over the angels. He also has authority to teach. Look at verse 22. The leaders were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had what? Authority. We never heard anything like this. Jesus has authority over nature and demons. Look at verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they... Who in the world could stop the mouths of demons? God, right? He also has authority to forgive sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. This is the story of the four men bringing their friend who's the paralytic to Jesus. They lay him down. Jesus is confronted by all the religious leaders, and here's what he says. He says, to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. Which is it easier to do, forgive sins or say, take up your bed and walk? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, to prove to you that I can supernaturally forgive sins, something you can't see, I'm going to do something in the physical realm that you can see to prove that I'm supernaturally doing that in the invisible realm. And so he tells the man, take up your bed and walk. He has the authority over Sin also is authority over the Sabbath. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord even over what? The Sabbath. Jesus has authority to give authority. Mark chapter 3, you see Jesus calling the disciples to himself after he chooses them, and it says that he gives them authority to cast out demons, to prophesy in his name. Why do I say that? Come in real close. If Jesus Christ has authority over nature, 
And he has authority over sin. And he has authority over the Sabbath. And he has authority over the angels. And he has authority over uh, issues in our life. And he has authority to put the stars in the place and the planets in the sky. And he has the authority and the ability to create you in your mother's womb before the foundation of the world. He knew about that. Don't you think, get this, don't you think you can trust him with your life? See, somebody needs to hear this today. Because in a group this size, there are, there are different people in here. There are some people who would look at me and say, Pastor, I am at the mountaintop of blessing. Life couldn't be any better. I can't imagine that God is blessing me and I'm excited and enjoying life. But there are others in this room today. Look at me. You're in the darkest valley right now. And, and you literally are hanging on by a thread. And you need to hear this today. What I know about the God of the Bible is that there are no accidents in God's economy. Aren't you glad of that? There are no accidents in God's economy. God is sovereignly large and in charge of everything, right? And here's why you need to understand this. The sovereignty of God will change everything for you if you understand this. I look at it as kind of a curtain as the backdrop to a play stage. On the play, when actors are portraying different characters, you don't actually notice the black curtain behind the scenes, but you do if it's not there. And the sovereignty of God is like the curtain that's behind our lives, just kind of working and moving and existing and, and, and calming or calling all things together for his good. I learned this years ago as I heard a story of a, of a husband uh, who was uh, waiting for his wife to get dressed. They were going on a long trip to see her family, and he was waiting for her to get dressed. Now, I know that didn't happen in your home, but I heard of it happening in some marriages. Where the husband has to... Now listen, I don't have to wait for my wife, thank the Lord. She's very fast getting dressed. In fact, sometimes she has to wait for me. It takes a little while to fix this hair. But anyway, <laughs> but seriously, it does. And so <laughs> she waits for me sometimes. But anyway, uh, this guy's waiting for his wife and she's getting dressed. So he sits down to watch television and their favorite football team's on. And so he's looking at the end of the game, and he's about to turn it off. Two minutes left. They need two touchdowns to win. He's like, there's no way they're going to come back. But miraculously, they drive the ball all the way down. They score a touchdown. Seconds left on the clock. The team kicks an onside kick. They get the ball back at the 50-yard line. There are literally seconds on the clock. The quarterback drops back, last play of the game, throws a Hail Mary pass into the end zone. The running receiver dives out, outstretched arms, grabs the ball, pulls it in, no seconds on the clock. They win the game. He goes nuts. He's like, I cannot believe I just saw this. He turns the television off, calls to his wife. He says, honey, we have to go. They get in the car. About two hours into the trip, she's scanning through the broadcast on the radio and comes across, which unbeknownst to her, is the replay of the game. So it's about the end of the game, and the husband uh, leans over. She's like, I'm not going to listen to this. There's nowhere they're going to come back. They're down by two touchdowns. The husband leans over, grabs her hand on the radio, and says, honey, let's leave it on. I think they may come back. She's like, there's no way. He said, I'll bet you. I'll bet you they come back. She said, I'll take that bet. How much do you want to bet? He said, you choose it. Now, you know how it plays out. A couple seconds left of the game. They score the touchdown. They get it back. She is on the edge of her seat. She's starting to sweat bullets. She looks at her husband. He is calm, cool, and collected. She's like, what is wrong with you, honey? Why are you not? He says, honey, some of us have more faith than others. 
Last seconds of the game, quarterback gets back, 50-yard line, throws the Hail Mary pass. She's on the edge of her seat. The quarterback throws the ball, receiver grabs the ball, pulls it in, scores the touchdown. She goes nuts. The husband doesn't even flinch. She's like, what is wrong with you? She said, the whole game, you sat toward the end. You didn't move. You didn't show any expression. He says, honey, I have to be honest with you. He said, I have to be honest. I knew the outcome, get this, before we listened to the game. Friends, you need to hear this today. If you're a born-again Christian in here today, we win in the end. Aren't you glad of that? We know how this thing finishes, right? We're on the winning team, right? Jesus Christ has already fought the battle. He's paid the price on the cross, and we're on the home team. He's like, listen, just go out and serve and work, and we're going to win in the end and enjoy this thing called the Christian life. Is it always going to be easy? No. Is it worth it? You better believe it. Aren't you glad there are no accidents in the economy of God? There's nothing in this world that surprises our God. God knows our future better than you know your own past. And what Jesus says is this, not only should you not focus on yourself, the posture of the disciples, but I want you guys to focus on the providence of God. He's in control. But then Jesus shifts and gives a plan of action. Write it down. He gives a plan of action. And it's a twofold plan whereby he's going to give us the, the strategy and then he's going to give us a promise. Notice what he says. Let's make disciples of all nations. Let's make disciples of all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Here's the deal. For years, I thought maybe the command was go, or maybe the command was baptize, or we're commanded to teach. But the command here in verse 18 and verse 19 is make disciples. That's the command. The way we make disciples is what I like to liken to the legs that hold up the mantle of discipleship. So the command is make disciples. But the way we do that is by going, by baptizing, by teaching. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, go make converts, right? He didn't even say, go make decisions, as good as decisions are. He didn't even say, go make Christians. You know what was baffling to me years ago when I went and did a study of the New Testament? Do you know how many times the word Christian is used in the New Testament in the entire Bible? Guess how many times the word Christian is used? Three. Did you know that? The first two are actually negative particularly the first one. It's more of a term of making fun of them. Why are you following a dead man who died on a cross? Now, it's a good term now. I'm not discounting the term. But guess how many times the word disciple is used in the New Testament? Take a guess. 269 times. 238 times in the Gospels alone. So the question that begs to get answered is, is Jesus wanting us to be Christians or disciples? And the answer is a disciple. Now, you're probably saying, what's the difference? A disciple is a learner, okay? A disciple is a student. A disciple, get it, is a co-worker, not a consumer. Now, sadly, in many churches today, we have a lot of consumers, people who would say, and this may be you, what can the church do for me? Not what can I do for the kingdom, what can I do for the advancement of the gospel, but what can God do for me? That's a consumerism mentality. But what a disciple is, is a co-worker, right? And here's what I want you to get. That's what we need at Harvest. We, we need 
co-workers to partner in the ministry. Now, you're probably saying, well, maybe that's me. I, I am a consumer. It's not even your fault. I think the way we got here is from generation after generation of church tradition, get this, who taught half of the gospel. Because here's the deal. If you preach a non-discipleship gospel, you produce non-disciples of Christ, right? Because here's what you've been taught is the gospel. You need to be saved from your sins, so salvation is essential, but following Jesus is optional, right? Like, if you want to follow Jesus, that's an option. But you don't want to go to hell, do you? I mean, you don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. And so salvation is simple, uh, is essential. Following Jesus is optional. And when you have that mindset, and we've bought into that mindset, conversion is important. Baptism is the finish line. I mean, here's what we do. When this person's baptized, and listen, I'm guilty as charged. I've done this as well through the years. Somebody gets baptized. We say, praise the Lord for Joe. He followed through at baptism. We pat him on the back. We say, suck it up. We'll see you next week. And oh, by the way, here's a, here's a Bible. Read the gospel of John. We'll see you next week. And we wonder why the church is in the state it's in today. There's no way he can read the Bible. There's no way he can discern the things. There's no way he knows how to pray. And so we have left him like a newborn baby to try to figure this out. I learned this early on as a, as a pastor. I was, I was pastoring, a, pastoring a manual Baptist church. It was a church of 65 people on the bayou of Louisiana. And if you don't know what that means, I had fishermen and shrimpers as church members. You talk about a unique group of people, right? I love them all dearly, but it was very unique. And uh, we were there at this church, and I read a book called The Lost Art of Disciple Making by a guy named Leroy Imes. Now, you may not have heard of Leroy Imes, but you've heard of The Navigators. Anybody familiar with The Navigators? I read this book, and Leroy's kind of lamenting how he's burdened for a young pastor, he disciple. And he talks about in the book how this young pastor calls him and says, Brother Leroy, everything is going great in our church for all practical purposes. He said, more people are being saved than ever before. We have baptized more this year than many years combined. He said, there's an excitement in my church. People are following uh, with coming every week. They're listening, he said, to the sermon. But the problem is this. Here's what he said. He said, I need to find someone who could do more than just take up an offering as an usher. I need to find someone who could do more than just take tapes of my sermons to shut-ins. I need to find someone who can do more than just lead a business or a members meeting. He said, what I need is I need someone who feels competent and courageous enough to share the gospel with a lost person in their life, walk with them for a year to develop them into a mature disciple through investing, and then replicate the process in their life. He said, when I looked out at my congregation, I realized I had no one that could do that. So I did the same thing. I was pastoring the church. I looked out at the congregation, and sadly, I admit, and this is no indictment to my church. A lot of churches like this. I looked out, and I thought, do I have anybody? And I realized I didn't have anybody. Either. So let me ask you that question. What do you think you are, just by your own admission? If you were asking an honest question to yourself, do you say, I'm a, I'm a consumer here, just to be honest with God, I'm a consumer. Or I'm a coworker in the gospel. Like, 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 like my mission is not what can the kingdom do for me, but what can I do for the kingdom of God? And here's what I think the problem is. We have all been taught that salvation is just, watch this, saving us from something. And I want you to, if you get nothing else, get this. God has actually saved us for something, right? 
not just from something. God has actually saved us for something, and that for is what I think we all need to figure out. God has gifted each of us in different ways. And if we think that way, that, that discipleship is optional and it's a choice we choose, and golly, I don't want to do that, here's what happens. The sp- and, and let me just give you, the, is it all right if I speak freely for just a moment? Is, this is yes, this is, can I speak? Just freely, okay? I have no axe to grind, I, I don't have anybody in mind, just going to speak freely. When we think that way, church, get this, the spiritual disciplines become recommended but not required. What do you mean? We should eat right, but nobody eats right. We should exercise daily, but nobody exercises daily, right? Like, like I know I should read my Bible, but why would I read my Bible? I still go to heaven, right? See, see when you reduce salvation to a spiritual questionnaire whereby you've got to say the right answers to fill in the blanks at the right time and repeat the, cor- the prayer correctly right after me so we can pat you on the back and say you're saved from your sins, you go to heaven, and we don't tell you there's this wonderful Christian abundant life, that's the kind of disciple we produce. And so reading the Bible is optional. Why would I read the Bible? I don't, I don't have time for that. Memorizing scripture is optional. Prayer is optional. Whether I pray or not, I still go to heaven. Fasting is optional. Silence and solitude is optional. Church attendance is optional. Let's be honest. There are some people, listen to me, who are more bent toward going to see the Maple Leafs play every Sunday who are a temporal athletic team that will pass away when heaven and earth come than coming to worship the God of the universe here on Sunday morning every week. And and brother pastor, listen to me. Brother father, listen to me. You don't realize what you're doing to say to your kids. Remember what I said earlier, you expect what you emulate? Here's what you're teaching your kids. It's okay to go watch sports, and we can go to church when we want. And what's happened, I think, as a result of this is this non-discipleship gospel whereby we have a church full of people who look mature but are actually spiritual infants. Now, don't get me wrong. I love infants. I love our children. We've had two boys we have, two, we, have two, we have two boys. Uh, people always ask, why didn't you, they ask us all the time, why didn't you go for the girl? Like the ideal family is a boy and a girl. And if you don't have a boy and a girl, you've got to go for the girl. Or if you have two girls, you've got to go for the boy. Anybody with me? <laughs> and I have to be honest with you, we stopped at two boys. And you would have too. I mean, our two boys. And I love my kids. Did I not say that? I love my kids. But our kids had colic. Does anybody know what colic is? Okay. You don't know it if you don't have it, but when you have it, you know it, right? Okay, so colic is, for those who don't know, it's an underdeveloped stomach whereby the kid, it's like 24-7, seven days a week, unending crying, because the kid cries, the child cries when it's hungry, so you feed the child, but then when the child eats, it cries again because the stomach is underdeveloped, so the stomach hurts, so it cries again until it's hungry, and it's just like 24-7, did I mention we love our kids? Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. There were times when we tried everything. I mean, we tried the gas drops. You guys see the gas drops. We tried the gas drops. We tried this stuff called colic calm, right? We tried that. We tried NyQuil. No, we didn't try NyQuil. We didn't try NyQuil. I'm just playing. We thought about it. Um, <laughs> I thought about it. Didn't know if that was right. But anyway, we tried, we tried everything. And, and I called my mom for sympathy. I don't know if you have a mom like this. I'm like, Mom, I can't get any sleep. And Mom's like, I don't want to hear it. You, you had colic for nine months, and we didn't have all those fancy drops. I'm like, I'm just trying to get consoled here. You have a mom like that? I'm like, I just want to console, console me. And 
I mean, we put the child on the dryer and turned it on. We drove our children around the neighborhood. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We do all these things. I love children, okay? Did I mention that? I love our children. But we thank God they move from being an infant to young men, and then eventually they'll be in high school, and eventually they'll be young adults, and eventually, prayerfully, they'll move out of your house and get married, right? And eventually they start their own family. So what happens is they progress, right? If a child, come in close, remains in an infant state and doesn't grow, we don't celebrate that, we investigate that as a problem. Friends, there's nothing good about seeing a 50-year-old man in a church with a spiritual pacifier in his mouth because he's an immature disciple of Christ. We don't celebrate that. We investigate. Here's what I realized. Spiritual maturity does not equate to church attendance. What it means is just because you've been in church all your life doesn't mean you're a spiritually mature man of God or a woman of God. And so I want you to leave with this. I want you to just think about this. You're not just saved from something at harvest. God didn't just save you from. God actually saved you for something. And Oswald Chambers said it best. I love this quote. Very convicting. Here's what he said. He said, the number one goal of the devil, the number one goal of the devil is to keep a believer useless. Just keep coming to church and live like you want. It's fine. He wins. So Jesus says, listen, I want you guys to have the plan of action, which is to make disciples of all nations. But secondly, here it is, I want you to trust the Lord in all situations. Did you know there are actually two imperatives, two challenges in the Great Commission? I've always said there are one, there's one, but there's actually two. Make disciples of all nations, and here's the second one. Remember, the CSB says, the ESV, I think, says, behold, right, or lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. How can you command lo, or how can you imperative behold? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, and he knows that making disciples and investing in people is tough. Anybody with me? You ever invested in somebody before? You know why that's tough? Here's why. Because people are messy. Did you know you're messy? Like, your life is a mess. You knew that, right? Because you know how I know that? Because my life is a mess. Our lives are a mess. But Jesus said, don't let the messiness of life preclude you from making disciples. Because when it gets hard, look to me. When it gets difficult, look to me. And I love the fact that Jesus bookends the Great Commission, get this, with the providence of God and a promise from God that he's going to be with you. So, so you have the promise and his presence bookended around make disciples. Now, a lot of people in here would say, okay, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to give my life and make disciples. Where do I start? Here's what I want you to see as we close. The textbook to the disciple-making ministry is the Bible. Okay? There are a lot of good books out there? Yeah. A lot of good resources out there? Yeah. But the Bible is the textbook. And here's what we tell our church. You never graduate from the Bible. Did you know that? Like, like, you don't finish this book and go get another book. This is the book. And the more you read, it's like the Bible goes deep and wide in your life. And so I just want to challenge you to think about the Bible being the textbook. And you know what's cool about the Bible? You don't have to make it relevant. You don't, know, you don't have to dress it up. You don't have to help apply it. The Bible does the work when you let the Bible work in people's life, right? I heard a story of a young uh, pastor uh, who just started going to Africa uh, he was a Gideon uh, coordinator, and he's part of the Gideon movement. You guys are familiar with the little Gideon Bibles. 
And uh, he would go all over the country and give these Bibles out. Just simply share the good news, give the Bibles out. So he goes to this village in, in South Africa. And uh, he had ministered in the town, but he had heard about this village way out in the distance that was really ravaged by drugs. And they had this local drug dealer who was kind of the kingpin of the community, and he was just selling drugs, ruined the whole community. And so he naturally said, I want to go give a Bible to this man. And the translator said, oh, no, Pastor. This man is not going to accept the Bible. Like, he does not want to buy. No, but we want to go anyway. So he goes up to the small village, which is just ridden with drugs and riddled with drugs. And so he gives the man the, the, the Gideon Bible. He says, hey, I want to give you this Bible. The man says, I don't want that Bible through a translator. He said, no, no, I want, the, I want you to have this Bible. And so the drug dealer man opens the Bible, and he says, listen, to be honest with you, if you get, and he looks at the pages, he starts feeling them. He said, if you give me this Bible, to be honest with you, the only thing I'm going to do is tear the pages out and roll joints and smoke it. The missionary pastor thought quick, and he said, I don't mind if you do that. Make sure you read the page before you smoke it. <laughs> to which the guy said, great, this is great rolling paper. He leaves, which is <laughs> another story for another day. But anyway, he leaves, comes back a few years later, and hears about this amazing revival that's taking place in the village where the drug dealer lived. And he comes to find out that not only did the drug dealer get saved, but the drug dealer now is the pastor for the community. There's like a revival going on in this town, okay? Now watch how it happens. So he drives up to the town. He naturally finds the guy, and he's like, you don't even look the same. It's like, what happened to you? He's like, man, I got saved, right? He's like, I want to hear the story. The drug dealer says, can I be honest with you, pastor? He said, I want you to be honest. He said, well, I smoked through Matthew. <laughs> He said, and then I smoked through Mark. <laughs> and then I smoked through Luke. He said, but when I got to John, I couldn't smoke through John. John smoked me. <laughs> Friends, listen to me. It is the power of the word, amen? Listen, do not underestimate the power of the word of God and the empowerment of the spirit of God to invest in the people of God for the glory of God. You can do this. You hear me? You can do this. So here's my challenge to you. I want to challenge you to get involved in a discipling relationship. Now, some of you may say, well, Pastor, I can't lead a group. I don't feel confident to do that. That's fine. Get in a group. Seek out some other men. Ladies, seek out some other ladies. Start meeting in a small, intentional group for the purpose of accountability and intimacy and transparency and reproducibility. And maybe there are some of you who would say, you know, I don't feel like I can lead, but I'm going to step out in faith. And I want to challenge you to gather some men together and start journeying together for the glory of God. Here's why. If God would tell you, when you step out on faith like that and you follow the Lord, God begins to do things in your life that he never otherwise wouldn't do or would do if you wouldn't do that. Now watch this. If God would tell you what he's going to do in your life over the next two to five years, you wouldn't even believe him. If God would have told me 15 years ago yesterday that I would be the pastor of a church in Tennessee, that I would have an amazing wife, two amazing kids, and I would be preaching to an amazing church in Toronto, Canada. I wouldn't have believed him. But that's how God works, amen? He exceedingly does more than we can ever ask or imagine. So I want to challenge you. Get involved in a D group in your life if you have it. It will literally change the course of your life for eternity. Father, we love you. We're so thankful for 
the Word of God. We thank you for a church that's engaged and wants to hear the Word and live the Word. And I just pray this is not a mountaintop experience or even a sermon people say, that was great points or great insights. I pray that people heard from you and that people follow through and obey you. God, we know we're never closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than when we are obeying what he's called us to do. God, you've called us all to make disciples and to be a disciple who makes disciples. So, Father, we pray you have your way today. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.